Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have another mini water cooler episode and talk about what we've been up to lately. My name is Ben Pearson. I am a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film News Editor, Y. Bui. Hey, everyone. HT, how's it going? Good. You know, Good. Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Dune is still on the brain. Dune has been on the brain. It's been, um, you know, it's been taken over my brain the spice you're just, has been you're rolling been around the in melange over yeah, there exactly <laughs> uh, well i'm excited that the movie is available on hbo max for you to just like constantly have it be you know injecting itself into your pain. actually put it on the background the other day <laughs> <laughs> i figured <laughs> excellent all right well we've done a lot of dune talk on the podcast recently so let's talk a little bit about uh some other stuff that we've been watching um you know lately we have not really been digging into the what we've been doing um section of of our uh, water cooler breakdowns here but i wanted to mention that last night i had the chance to go to the movie theater for the second time since covid started which wow. was what 19 months ago or something um so i saw f9 in theaters uh in, in an imax theater actually like whenever that was june of this year um but that was like right in that sort of period where like things were tailing off and in florida anyway and it, it you know things looked pretty decent. And then right before Delta sort of hit and, and kind of took over in a big way. So I have not been back to the theater since then, but I went last night because there's a theater that's probably five minutes away from my house that uh, I could check online to see if anybody was, you know, the, the seating chart or whatever. And I wanted to see the last duel and I checked and there was nobody in the theater for like an 8 PM showing. And I was like, it was seven fifty one, And I was like, I'm going. <laughs> I'm doing it. So uh, yeah, I went and there was nobody in the in the theater for the entire movie. So that was a really cool experience just to sit there and be like, oh man, movies. This is great without the annoying people on their on their phones or anything. So um, yeah, I highly recommend seeing a movie completely by yourself in a theater if that is possible. Um, so have you done that before, HD? Have you had that experience? Oh, I don't know. I mean. I've had press screenings where there are very few people, maybe one other person than me, but 
by myself, probably not. Um, maybe not since I was a kid. And there was this theater, this independent theater near my grandma's house. And uh, I went like during a weekday in the middle of summer and there was no one there. Nice. <laughs> I think it was Ella Enchanted. Oh, wow. Okay. Throwing it back. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about The Last Duel. You and I both saw this movie. Uh, what did you think about it? I loved it. Um, I didn't have high expectations for it. Uh, I just kind of seemed like there was a lot of buzz around it being the Me Too movie and Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon had, you know, classic cases of foot in your mouth disease during the press cycle. So I was just not sure if they would be able to tackle this um, this material sensitively or well, uh, even though I love Ridley Scott as a director and um, I love Jodie Comer as an actress. Um, I was unsure about this movie, but then the praise started rolling in about a week before it hit. And I was like, oh, I guess I need to check this out. And I was especially intrigued by the um, description of it being Rashomon-like, uh, which was something I I guess I hadn't expected, even though I think it's in the synopsis that it's from different points of views. Um, so that, you know, piqued my interest. And going in, I was basically very excited. And I was not let down by the film, which does the Rashomon thing tells things from the different perspectives of Matt Damon's character, Adam Driver's character, and Jodie Comer's character about a rape and the last duel that ensued in uh, medieval France. And um, it's this like fantastic, grimy, gory um, movie that felt like it emerged almost out of uh, like 80s European uh, sword and sandals type of films. Uh, but, you know, now it's in modern day and it's it has a bit of a prestige sheen because of that Rashomon mm -hmm, thing. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's like it's like grimy Rashomon, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I uh, I also enjoyed the movie. I didn't love it, but I liked it a lot. Um, I was hoping to to sort of fall head over heels for this movie because like the story of it is so unique. It was like you know one of the last Fox movies or, or movies that was sort of greenlit under the Fox regime before Disney acquired them. You have the the um, reunion of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, who haven't written a movie together since Goodwill Hunting, and you've got Nicole Holofcener thrown in there in the mix, uh, helping them out uh, writing the screenplay as well. Um, and just like, you know, Damon and Affleck on screen together is sort of a rare thing these days. Um, and I, I generally like those guys, even though, as you've mentioned, they've they've had uh, quite the number of stumbles over the years in, in you know, off screen and on, actually. But um, yeah, I, I, I think the most interesting thing to me about this movie is that is the structure of it and is, you know, in some some of these movies, like I'm thinking of. Um, like vantage point and some of these films that there was a period where you got a lot of these Rashomon type of uh, stories that are told, you know, that, that cover the same events from a bunch of different perspectives. And I feel like a lot of those movies uh, you see literally the same exact beats from different angles. And it's like a lot of the same dialogue and stuff like that. And this movie does that to a degree, but it also, I think there's enough changes in the story and the uh, the particular storylines of the people, as you're seeing it from these different perspectives, where it, it makes it more interesting. It makes it more about like memory and um, you know uh, how everybody's the hero of their own story, and it, it's sort of these subtle changes in dialogue. Like in some instances, one character will say something, and in another, somebody else in that scene will say the same exact line of dialogue. So it's like 
are you just misremembering this scene, you know, when you're quote unquote telling it back to the audience, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, there's, there's some really interesting structural stuff going on there. And I think Jodie Comer is, is really, really good in this with a, a role that is like pretty tough to play for her, I think. I mean, not for her, for anybody. Mm-hmm. But can we talk about Ben Affleck? Who just oh, yeah. steals yeah. the scenes in this movie playing. I think he's just like in his character actor era now. And he's really embracing playing that sort of skeezy, over-the-top, like um, just – complete sleazeball of a character and he's so fun it's a very modern performance and it's one that still somehow fits within this world because you know it doesn't pretend to be all historically accurate everyone has different accents for example even though there are technically in medieval france Mm -hmm. and i think ben affleck's just having such a ball playing it he's playing um basically an extension of his character in shakespeare in love but like times 10 and yeah. it's really fun to see him sort of tap into that because i think he's perfect for this especially like he's always kind of miscast in those leading man roles anyways because he has one of those those faces that feel like they have a permanent smirk on him mm-hmm. like you know i've i've described it before as a face the face you kind of want to punch <laughs> yeah. he's like he's, he's good looking but you're like oh, i don't i don't the kind of good looking that sort of puts you off in a way <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah and i think he plays really well into that um into that that his face and that typecast that he's always been in with this role where he's just having a ball. Yeah. Like nobody else in this movie is allowed to have fun. Cause it's a pretty dour movie overall. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's kind of a rough watch at it's certain a rough watch, points. But it's also surprisingly funny, uh, mostly because of Ben Affleck, but other moments too. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It does have its moments of levity, but he is certainly like the, uh, the shining star in the movie. If there is one performance to single out, it would be his. I think Adam driver is, is very good in this also. Cause he's, He's sort of like calibrating his performance in a way where, um, you know, he, his character is like the the villain of the piece, if you want to call it that. And um, he does not have like the he doesn't do the mustache twirling thing. Like whereas Ben Affleck really is like leaning into chewing scenery. Adam Driver has much more restraint with the way that he depicts his character across all three of those uh, different perspectives. And um, yeah, I think he he does. You know, if you were to point out like a a performance that is the most fun and the most flashy, Ben Affleck would certainly have that. But I, th- I wonder, I don't know, it would be a toss up for me between Jodie Comer and Adam Driver in terms of like what the best performance of the movie is. Yeah, um, I think I think all the performances are great. I actually think Matt Damon is kind of underrated as that guy who just thinks he's that the, the shit and is really not. Yeah, yeah, he's so like the movie sort of shows him to be so pathetic and mm-hmm. uh, and just like this prideful, vain character who is really you know kind of like really sad to watch in a lot of different ways. And Damon is really game to play that too. Like, there's no mm-hmm. vanity in that performance, even yeah. though he's playing a very vain character, which is interesting. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, well, any any closing thoughts on The Last Duel, Aishi? Would you recommend that people see it? I would recommend people see it. I'm very sad that it's bombing at the box office. I think it's one of the few films to come out of this current movie industry era just to to be something different and to be just kind of, it feels kind of like an, a film from, from yesteryear. I think that it being a, the tail end of that Fox Disney uh, deal, uh, lends to that but yeah it's mm-hmm. a great movie i think it's a it it does it is a hard watch but it's also a surprisingly fun and compelling watch too yeah and if you're jonesing for you know like that gladiator era ridley scott there's definitely some of that in this movie i know that like you know it's being sold as this 
like you said, sort of a me too thing and like, um, you know, movie that's, that has sexual assault at the center of it. And, and, you know, there it's definitely not the easiest thing to, to watch, but there's some really like hard hitting, brutal, uh, like medieval violence in here. So if you're, if you're looking for that kind of thing, really Scott is just killing it as a director. Like he's still able to. It might yeah. be one of Scott's gorier movies, honestly. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty brutal. So uh, that is the last duel. It is still in theaters right now. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple things that I've been watching on the Criterion uh, channel. And these movies are called The Tall T and Ride Lonesome. And they are both in the, I think it's called the Renown series of Westerns, which were directed by this filmmaker named Bud Bedecker. And they star Randolph Scott, who uh, is an actor that I not really had a ton of familiar with, familiarity with until I saw a movie a little while back called Seven Men From Now, which is also in this collection on the uh, Criterion Collection or Criterion Channel, which has like, I, I think it has like seven or eight of their uh, collaborations together. And they're all Westerns and they're all from like the, you know, around the 50s, mid to late 50s and, and maybe into the early 60s. But um, I just wanted to, to shout these out because Seven Men From Now, uh, which I've not rewatched recently, but like I said, I saw, you know, for the first time like a year or so ago, uh, is like one of the best Westerns that I've ever seen. Uh, the Tall T is is really good. Ride Loathsome is really good too. So I, I think Bud Bedecker is like quickly becoming one of my favorite Western directors. There's something about the way that, you know, I, I feel like... Um, Western directors, uh, when we look back on them now, when we study them and, and um, look back at people like John Ford and Sergio Leone and, and all the sort of classic uh, names of that time period and, and that genre, you know, each of them has like a stylistic thing that sort of sets them apart. And, and the, there's not really a, um, I guess that's the best way to say it. There's a, there's a stylistic thing. There's like a directorial flourish that they use. And I feel like Bud Bedecker does not have in the three films that I've seen of his, he does not have a, a directorial flourish other than just making movies that feel so tightly scripted. And even though he hasn't been, he's, he's not the writer of these movies uh, primarily. Um, but there's, that's the through line that I've seen from all of his movies. He's just exceptionally talented at like, delivering these really, really tightly paced, um, perfectly enclosed Westerns with super pulpy stories that just feel uh, like you're being transported back in time or you're reading an old, like dusty uh, paperback, you know, like a, a one of those old school, old school, like Pulp Fiction kind of novels. Um, Randolph Scott, uh, Randolph Scott is, is sort of like, again, quickly becoming like one of my favorite uh, Western actors. He just has, he brings a totally different type of energy than somebody like uh, Clint Eastwood or, um, you know, uh, any of the other like major uh, Western. John Houston. Well, yeah, John Wayne or, or uh, yeah, anybody in that period. Randolph Scott just has this sort of, it's almost a modern flair where, where it feels like a, a little bit like he's a man out of time, like, uh, transported back into that that period, but he has just he he does so much with stillness and and quiet. He's like a uh, he's not one of these guys that you know in in modern movies. Actually, we talk about this all the time, where like every male actor today just has this absurd body that just feels like you know they've spent six months doing nothing but doing like the most intensive workouts preparing for these movies. Mm-hmm. So there's this unrealistic 
you know, vision of, of what the male body looks like here. And Randolph Scott was making movies in a time when that was not the case. So he has this like man's man quality to him where he's like a really strong, like a, a strapping guy, but he's also just like a normal looking dude to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is able to, uh, you know, even though he looks like maybe like what your grandfather might've looked like or something, if, if you lived in a certain part of the world in, in, in that time, um, he, he brings a, uh, a level of menace and also warmth in certain roles. Um, just this combination of, uh, of like, knowing how to use his physicality in a way that I feel like is kind of lost these days. So uh, I just wanted to shout that out and and give those movies a very high recommendation. So that is seven men from now, which is if you're only going to watch one, watch that one, but also ride lonesome and the tall T all of those are streaming on the criterion channel right now. Mm. Uh, What have you been watching HT? Well, you know, speaking of what we were talking about with Last Duel before, I decided to prep for Last Duel by watching Rashomon, which I'd never seen before. That's the Akira Kurosawa film uh, that famously presented, you know, it it wasn't a new concept, but kind of popularized the, mm-hmm. the concept of showing a story from several different perspectives. Everyone's the hero of their own story. And uh, it, I was reading up on this as I was watching the movie that it was based off of a Japanese uh, either folktale or something or a a novel or a poem and i found that really interesting the history going back into it but yeah Rash- rashomon good movie <laughs> i don't really have like a <laughs> bigger take than that because i feel like it's been written about and spoken about so much that anything i say would be redundant uh it's fantastic and also it's only an hour and a half and it feels so immense in the way that it tells these stories with a lot of detail and yet it's it's so quick it's but yeah fantastic film um other things i watched Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, Rashomon is streaming on HBO Max and I think also Criterion Channel. Nice. So next, I watched Eternals, the new Marvel movie. And I will not go too deep into spoilers, but um, you can also read my review on SlashFilm.com, which went up this past Sunday. And it's it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I actually tweeted this uh, soon after I had come out of the screening. Uh, have you seen Tim Robinson's I Think You Should Leave sketch show on Netflix, Ben? I have, yes. There is a, a sketch in the second season where it's about how Santa Claus decides to retire from you know, delivering presents and take up the more lucrative career of starring in B action movies that are basically just cash grabs. Uh, <laughs> and he goes on these press tours and will like enthusiastically deliver these canned lines about how it's a cosmic gumbo. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's kind of like a, a poking fun at how like these words are put together and they sound fancy and sophisticated, but they mean nothing. And I couldn't help but think, of cosmic gumbo the entire time that I was watching Eternals. I actually wrote it twice in my notes. So it's obviously <laughs> on my brain. And this sounds like I am, you know, really go- being down on Eternals, which is a movie that I I liked. I think it had some really, really big, interesting swings. I think it's the bleakest uh, Marvel movie. It has a really almost nihilistic um, viewpoint when you get down to it. But really? Also has, that like, is fascinating. Yeah, it, it, I, I can't go into it without spoilers, but it's um, it's about basically asking whether humanity is worth saving, mm. um, which I thought was really, really interesting. But it also takes forever to get there. The first hour is really, really rough. The pacing is is pretty baggy. And the first, I think it's trying to consolidate 
Chloe Zhao, who's an excellent filmmaker and whose Nomadland is one of my favorite films of these past few years, um, her style of this like sort of meditative humanism with the Marvel style and and the cosmic elements of Jack Kirby's story. So it kind of gets thrown together in this hodgepodge. You might even say it's a cosmic combo. <laughs> Uh, so, so it sounds like Chloe's style is sort of at odds with the, the typical Marvel formula. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I asked Brad, Brad this on the podcast yesterday. Do you think that she's sort of like, um, I guess, what do you think about her as a director, uh, stepping into the Marvel universe? Do you think she was ultimately able to sort of acquit herself well and like put her stamp on this movie in a way that, that ended up being satisfying? I think she was able to put her stamp on this film um, because it does feel unlike most other Marvel films, but her stamp still feels somewhat diluted in some way. So she manages to to bring the movie in a different direction, in a more poetic and elegant direction, but it still feels like it's held back in some way. There's like I wrote about this in my review, how it felt kind of like it was a focus group pitch. Mm. still and like it came from that and Chloe Zhao was given the resources and tools to do with that what she will but it still feels like that's where it began that's kind of actually how it works at Marvel isn't it like for for the most part they kind of like have a, a very very loose idea of like here you can do this thing with like the this handful of characters like go to town you know come up with a story for it so yeah um, I guess like I still felt the remnants like the wiring of that initial yeah push. okay what else have we been watching HD? Other things I watched. I also watched Spencer. Holy crap. This movie <laughs> is incredible. Uh, it's a ghost story, a horror movie, a Greek tragedy all in one. And Kristen Stewart gives the best, most devastating performance of her career. I cried three times during this film. <laughs> and wow. it's a lot of it because Kristen is just Kristen Stewart is so incredible and just like and so emotive and it feels like her performance itself is like this this barely repressed stifled scream of a performance it's just it's just fantastic um I yeah I I was not expecting how much of a horror film that this that Spencer plays out like Spencer by the way is about Princess Diana uh, Diana Spencer and it takes place during the um the weekend uh, in which she spends Christmas with the the royal family uh, that they do every year. It's a big tradition. It's like the the Christmas that she decides to basically divorce Charles, and the her the turmoil and everything that she's going through. She's she's suffering from an eating disorder. She's suffering from the the eyes uh, the prying eyes of the public and the press, as well as the royals themselves and the, the coldness with which they treat her, and um, how just kind of repressed that she's felt this entire time and uh it it plays like a horror movie there's so much dread in this and i had honestly expected um to like it because pablo pablo lorraine directed jackie one of my favorite biopics ever i think um and i absolutely adored that uh and i had expected to like the performance in this but i didn't expect to like it as much as Jackie, I think I might even like it more than Jackie, just because it's it's so like ghostly and haunting, and it's it's really really fantastic. One of my favorite movies of the year, um, easily. So let me ask you: I know you're a fan of The Crown, and you're at least you know vaguely familiar with the Royals in a way that uh, 
that out, outpaces my knowledge of them <laughs> by a, a, a good margin. So um, if it's possible for you to do this, try to put yourself in a position of somebody who doesn't really have any uh, knowledge of Princess Diana and her story. And then what would a person like that think about seeing this movie? Is this, if this was like the only thing beyond, you know, the most cursory news broadcasts and, and basic uh, biography information that you've gleaned through cultural osmosis about uh, Princess Diana and you go see Spencer, do you think that that is enough to really get what this movie is trying to do? Oh, yeah. You really don't need to know anything going into Spencer because it really is just like this this portrait of a woman in like this small window of time and you really get to know everything you need within that window of time. Um, it's just more about the character study than it, about, than it is about the Diana of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd say like it, it might be even better that you go in without any knowledge of, of the royals and of Princess Diana because if you do know anything about Princess Diana, you will pick it apart because it's a very fictionalized, very dramatized depiction of oh, her. Oh, I see. Okay. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of liberties that they take. Um, so I would say definitely, I would highly recommend going in if you haven't if you don't know anything about the royals or about Diana. Okay. All right. Good to know. Uh, what else have you been watching, HT? I have also been watching. Uh, I saw this film called Bell. It's an animated film. It's directed by Mamoru Hosoda, who's actually one of my favorite uh, anime film directors currently working today, um, outside of Hayao Miyazaki, of course. Uh, I would rank him even above Makoto Shinkai, who directed Your Name, because I just really enjoy Hosoda's sensibilities, especially. Um, I talked about this on the podcast, I think, numerous times before, but he has this very uh, whimsical, fantastical, but still grounded sense of his films. And a lot of them are based in his own struggles with parenthood and fatherhood, which I always find really fascinating. So his new film, Bell, is a sort of retelling of Beauty and the Beast, uh, but it's about a young high school girl whose mother uh, dies when she's young. And she's been, you know, really struggling with this ever since. Uh, she and her mom used to sing together and make music together, together. But ever since her mother died, she's been unable to sing until she uh, gets an invitation to this virtual world called You. And there she manages to find her voice again and she starts to sing and she becomes a really popular, uh, you know, figure in You, like a really popular singer there, which is this, uh, you know, art of like, virtual reality where everyone is anonymous they all take different shapes and forms so no one knows who knows who she is and she's like this famous within this world and it's you know she's her name is Belle in the world and she there's this other character uh that they call the beast who is like this sort of fighter within this world and uh kind of seen as this menace um and she strikes up a connection with this this other user uh, and it goes in a different direction than you would think it's not actually a romantic tale which I was really surprised about it's about different kinds of love uh, than than romance and I was really really uh, entranced by this I was really moved by it I honestly like Mikoto Shinkai who um, has directed other like digital movies like he he got a start in the Digimon movies Hmm. um, and I am not always fond of, of those films. I like his more slice of life films more. Um, but this one just really, really blew me away, um, both in the story and like the visuals and just how emotionally cathartic it was. It's, it's about trauma, essentially, and uh, how, how 
how you can overcome your own weakness and strength by trying by like practicing this sort of unconditional love for others. And it's really, really uh, fantastic. Um, I think it's actually an international production. Cartoon Saloon, which did um, films like Wolfwalkers, actually helped to do the animation for the world within it. Uh, <laughs> Disney animator um, veteran helped to design the character of Belle. So there's like a lot of things going on in here. Um, I actually did an interview with Mamoru Hosoda uh, recently. It won't go up until later before the movie's released, but I highly recommend Belle. I, um, I think it'll be distributed... It's not coming out in U.S. theaters until January, but I saw it uh, a screener and it was making the festival rounds. And um, I'm I highly, highly recommend it. Okay, so that is called Bell. Sounds like something to put on your radar for sure. Uh, and then you also wanted to talk about uh, only what what is it called? Only, only murders, murders in, in the building. building. Have you not seen this, Ben? I, I've watched the first three episodes. Okay. Uh, it's it's a show that my wife and I are watching together, and we're just like really slowly going through. Like we'll watch like one every week and a half or something. Okay. Like when when we have the right you know when we're in the right mindset and just looking for something that's a little bit of a vibe and yeah. and uh, it's you know. so fun. It's such like this frothy comedic delight. It's the the true crime and I say true crime in like air quotes because it's about these true crime enthusiasts played by Steve Martin, Martin Short and Selena Gomez uh, who believe that a suicide in their building is actually a murder and decide to investigate and start their own podcast for it and it's a lot of fun I just I think it's just a, a complete delight from top to bottom I was watching episodes from week to week the finale aired I think last week and um, I was you know very excited. It was one of the, like the few times that week to week airing that I have had so much delight in since the streaming era. I think it's just been it's been a lot of fun to watch, and I think um, that it's got this fun, I don't know, frothy, artificial vibe that gives me sort of a pushing daisies esque sense to it. Um, I think it's I, I just think it's it's a really fun show. <laughs> So I, I I feel like you would have enjoyed it, but I guess you're not so as into it as I am, having watched the first three episodes. Yeah, I just I can't decide if Selena Gomez is good or terrible in the show. <laughs> her um, performance is interesting. Yeah, it's you know I, I the more I learn about her backstory, the more her performance kind of makes a little bit more sense to me. But in the, at least in the first three episodes, it's sort of I don't know. She's so. Um, She's contrasted again and juxtaposed against, you know, these these classic comedy guys of Martin and and uh uh what what's oh my god. What Steve Martin and Martin just Short. said Martin Short. Oh yeah, Martin and Martin. Martin, <laughs> um, Martin. Yeah. So, you know, they have such a different approach to acting and performance. And it's it, maybe it doesn't help that I've seen Selena Gomez in some really bad movies over the years. <laughs> um but yeah, it, it's an odd trio for sure and that's kind of like the point of the show right like they're mm -hmm. throwing these generations together uh over their shared love of true crime but um yeah i'm just i'm not sure how well the the final mix ends up shaking out but again i'm only three episodes in so maybe there's there's more room for my opinion to evolve in that regard but um i'm i'm like loosely interested in the the murder uh at the center of the story i'm sort of more interested in the uh the martin short character and like his money problems and like mm -hmm. steve martin just being 
kind of a, a piece of shit who seems like he's he's trying to be he's like presenting himself as a good guy but he's not quite a good guy and then uh, yeah the, like the character stuff is is what I'm the most interested in the here. character stuff I think is the best part of this too I think the the murder the twists are fun but they're almost inconsequential just to watching these three run around and I like Selena Gomez in this I think she makes really weird decisions but I think it works for the show just because of how heightened it is anyways so mm-hmm. it works for me Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I'm definitely going to finish the show. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to completely tail off on it. Uh, I just don't know when I'm going to get around to, to finishing it. But uh, I, maybe when I finish, I'll, I'll let you know if anything changed, uh, as if you really care that much, HD. But <laughs> um, all right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Home Daily. I will mention, or, or not mention, I will link to your Eternals review in the show notes so people can read that there just by clicking on it in, in your uh, podcast app. And Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site, like that Eternals review. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailback topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.